Our gracious Lord, in whom all our gifts reside and our hope exist, we beseech thee to come near to us and to enlighten our minds and convict our hearts so that we might be worthy disciples of thee. This I pray. Amen. All right, uh, this is the fourth. Got one more of these on the art of dying. It's an old consideration. Uh, people have been, that is in the church and other religions as well, thinking about how should we approach our death. And, uh, and I think it's an appropriate consideration here during Lent that we do this. From dust we come and from dust we go. That is, we are mortal. And just as we have to take our life seriously, we should also take the fact that our lives will naturally end seriously as well. But I like the emphasis not necessarily on the end. That's almost tried, isn't it? That is, we will die. But the concept of art. That is, we need to be imaginative, creative, and courageous on how to properly understand our own pending mortality. And there's many, many people from whom we can learn much on. And I started off with this great painting here of St. Jerome, here, as he's working feverishly to finish the Vulgate, he's looking at the skull, reminding him that his days are numbered and that he has to do the most and the best that he can during those days. And that is the wisdom that he learns, that is, to meditate here not only on his task, but his own mortality as well. We look also at Abraham, the lessons that he had to learn before he could truly approach his death as the great patriarch. And uh, last week, I looked at two great saints that exist within the church's own history as great examples of the art of dying. That was St. Anselm of Canterbury and then St. Francis of Assisi. And what I want to look at today are two great fictional characters in all of Western literature. I'll first look at Shakespeare's very famous King Lear, what we can learn from his very inartistic way of dying. And then we'll look at another great fictional character from a Russian novel, called Father Zosima, or Zosima, which is found in the great novel, my favorite novel, frankly, and I think arguably one of the most impactful novels in all of Western literature, and that's the Brothers Karamazov. But first of all, <coughs> give me a bit to get to. Shakespeare's King Lear. There's the bard himself. Uh, I, you know, I could talk a long time about Shakespeare, even though that I, I love him more than I really am a scholar about him. Uh, but I, I will say this, and I can say this with ultimate confidence, that the play that we're, we're considering today was published in 1608, over 400 years. Think about the state of science 400 years ago. What did they believe 400 years ago? or the economy, or politics. Look how the world has changed in the last 400 years, technologically, medically, socially. But we still study Shakespeare. And I will guarantee you, go 400 years in advance, even though our technology, obviously, our economy, our politics, who knows how different that will be, but we'll still be studying Shakespeare. And the reason why he was that insightful about the human condition, the problems that we all face with, and what we see in this magnificent play of King Lear is a very, very serious problem of what happens to a person when they don't know how to approach their death properly. This is the version of this one, King Lear. I suspect some of you probably have seen King Lear. 
I mean, seen it or read it. Uh, any of you read it back in high school or in college? Uh, I've read it. I've been part of a play. It was a very meaningful part, a very demanding part uh, to be in King Lear. But I found out so much more of the depth of the play by studying it so clearly and trying to understand the character of King Lear. This is not a very good picture. I couldn't get a very good one of it, but just a little overview of the play. King Lear, it's sort of pre-history or uh, pre-modern uh, England. Uh, he owns all of England and he is nearing his death. He's wanting to retire and he decides he's going to divide up his kingdom among his three daughters, um, Goneril, Regan, and Cordelia. The youngest is his favorite and he's not very you know, shy about showing and telling others why Cordelia is his favorite. But the test is that he is willing to give most of his kingdom to the daughter who talks and, and tries to persuade him that she loves him more than the other two. What a horrible thing to say to your children. Well, that's what he does. And so, and Goneril and Regan, frankly, are, are very manipulative. Uh, they're just as short-sighted as he is as a king. And they basically tell a bunch of false tales and lies to try to persuade their father that they love him more than the other two sisters. And then when Cordelia comes up, who's frankly the sincerest and the most profound in feelings and thought of the three daughters, uh, she refuses to play the game. She doesn't want to do that because she knows that it's hypocritical, it's superficial, and that her love is sincere. She didn't want to delude it anyway. So she doesn't do it. And Lear gets incensed with rage about this, just tears into her. And he says one of the most pitiful, horrible lines that a father could ever say to a daughter, better thou hast not been born than not to have loved me better. Well, and he banishes her cast her away and she goes away well he decides to stay various times with his 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 sort of bodyguard entourage with the two remaining daughters Goneril and then Regan and he lives a riotous life and makes a mess of things he spends all their money and the daughters that is Goneril and Regan uh, begin to plot how to get rid of him and their husbands who are just as invidious just as cruel as their wives also become part of this and they plot on how to get rid, cast him out, and eventually to kill him. Well, when uh, Lear finds this out, um, uh, he goes uh, mad. And there's that wonderful scene, it's probably one of the most famous scenes in the play and maybe in all of Shakespeare's, when he's out in the storm and he's, he's shaking his fist at God, blow winds and crack your lips. Rage blow you cataracts and hurricanes. And he is screaming out to God that uh, this should not have happened to him. That his daughters banishing him as he had banished the youngest of the daughters should not have happened to him. He's the king. This should not be. And so this starts a slow and at times rather dramatic uh, demise of his own sanity. In fact, there's one scene in which Lear is crazy. He's running around in the forest with flowers in his hair. He's imagining things from, from mice to his, his daughter Goneril. He sees Gloucester, who was his sort of secretary of the state, 
Actually, the play is really about two families, Lear's family and Gloucester's family. Gloucester has two sons, one's legitimate, the other one illegitimate. The illegitimate is perhaps the most evil of all characters in Shakespeare's play, starts a plot to kill him, his father Gloucester. Instead of killing him, he gouges his eyes out, has his eyes gouged out. He is so manipulative, that is Edmund, he gets one of the daughters, Regan, to be part of all that. Well, it, it is a powerful, powerful incident and, and conflict. Uh, between the two fathers and their children. Gloucester doesn't deserve it, though, but Lear sets forth sort of a, a chain, a cause and effect, a series of relationships in which, by his own selfishness, his greed, his short-sightedness, uh, he creates consequences that he doesn't want to live with. And he blames everybody but himself. He blames the daughters, and he blames God. There's this wonderful prayer that he has uh, out in the, in the woods in which uh, he, he says to God, take physic, pump, expose thyself that thou mayest reveal the superflux to the poor. And so he's blaming God for not doing more to make the world right when he himself has made not only his family but also his empire wrong. The conflict between the two daughters, Goneril and Regan, becomes so intense the civil war breaks out between them and they are fighting one another. Well, uh, he is eventually arrested. Uh, he meets up with Cordelia, the, perhaps the most effective emotional scene in all of the play is that he has gone mad, he's gone into sort of a semi-coma. Uh, Cordelia comes from France and is nursing him back to his health and he comes to and he sees her and he repents to her and he says to Cordelia, as I remember, your sisters have done me wrong. You have some cause, they do not. And you, if you've read the play, you can't forget this. Cordelia is really the Christ figure in the play. She says to her, her really cruel, short-sighted, ignorant, unwise father, no cause, no cause. And this starts a tremendous reconciliation between Lear and Cordelia, not because of him, but because of his daughter, Cordelia. Well, eventually they are arrested and... Uh, in, in a very odd scene, even though I think the lines are very, very powerful, uh, he is somewhat glad that they're going to be arrested because at last now he can be reconciled with his daughter. And he talks about how in their old age that they'll be in prison, you know, laughing at gilded butterflies and uh, taking upon themselves the mystery of things as that they could be God's spies. And here she is, a young woman, not married, no children, and she's been taken to a prison. Well, eventually uh, she is hanged. And uh, the last scene, King Lear comes onto the stage carrying his daughter Cordelia and he says, how, 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 and he says something uh, blasphemous at this point. And he says, and he says to the surrounding, this is Kent and um, Edward, I mean Edgar, on the stage there with him, if I'd had your eyes and your tongues, I would use them to assault heaven itself. He's still blaming God for all this rather than himself. Well, he, um, he's, as he puts her down, uh, he stands up and ironically, just prior to this scene, the two sisters, Goneril and Regan, had fought with one another. One had poisoned the other and the other one had been killed. They are also dead on the stage at the same time. So he carries in his dead daughter. He looks upon his other dead daughters and he says this 
and in some ways, I, I think this is sort of emblematic of um, Lear's own mentality and kind of summarizes so much of the utter tragedy of this story. He says, this is a dull sight. What a thing to say. The death of your three children, your empire collapsed. He had started a civil war in which hundreds of people had been killed. He had just taken his daughter, Cordelia, off of a hangman's rope. And he comes in and he says, this is a dull sight. He had brought his life to a point in which all he could see was just the dullness, the deadness, the, um, the uneven meaninglessness. I mean, the, the even meaninglessness of everything. What a dull sight to behold. Well, at the last, though, he is kneeling down at Cordelia, and um, he says also something that no, no parent ever wants to say. Uh, but maybe, in some ways, parents do have to say this. And he says, Why should a dog, a horse, a rat have life? But thou no breath at all. Thou shalt come no more. And he dies right there. Not really for sure how he dies. In the play, there are various incidents or references to what's called historic, I mean, uh, 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 rising up of the heart in Lear. And he, he, he gets sort of faint and he holds his side. Uh, all of this stress that he has created in his daughter's lives and his kingdom life and his own personal life is having kind of physical repercussions upon him. And I think, and this is how we interpret it when we acted this out, that Lear was having a heart attack. And at the end, all the grief that he is feeling, why should a dog, a horse, a rat have life but thou no breath of all, was too much for him, and he dies just meaninglessly. And Edgar looks on and says, this is the horror of the end. And it is. And it is. The, 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 this is a dull sight was also the conclusion of his life as well. That he was there, he died as meaninglessly as what he caused his daughters to die. Well, Lear is such a uh, powerful story. Uh, it's, it's extreme, obviously it is. Uh, but in some ways, it's kind of our story, and maybe in a far more modest way. Hopefully it is. Uh, but all of us know that how our tendency to be self-centered, uh, preoccupied with our own interest, can have such devastating consequences upon other people's lives as well. And here he was, the king, and in one of his states of madness, he meets Gloucester, who is blind because his eyes have been plucked out by Regan. Uh, and uh, Gloucester asks if he's the king, and he, even in his madness, he says, every inch a king, every inch a king. He still thought of himself as, as important, as preeminent, as supreme over everybody. Even though he had given away his kingdom, his daughters are trying to kill him, he has banished another dollar, he has gone mad, and he still thinks he's that important, every inch a king. But his greed, his selfishness, his short-sightedness, had created a dullness, what a dull sight this is, that he wasn't willing to recognize. Now, of course, that is extreme, but again, I think each of us knows that temptation, that if we see our, see our lives just rotating around our own interests, especially with our children and grandchildren, if we see our, our major concern in life is to promote our own preeminence and superiority over other people, we shouldn't be surprised that at the end there's nothing left there for us to say other than, what a dull sight. What a dull sight.
I hope this is not what we're learning as we realize our mortality, that this is a dull sight, that our lives are just what we can make and manufacture, manipulate them to be, that our families are just an extension or an expression of our own sort of self-centeredness, that uh, all of what we consider to be the truth and the mystery of heavens is what that gives to us. Hopefully we're not learning that. And by considering Lear, I think we learn a great truth, and that is he died as he lived. He died as he lived. He was self-absorbed, he died in anguish, and he died alone. The other figure I want to look at comes from this great novelist, Fedor Dostoevsky. Lived only 60 years, born in 1821 and died in 1881. And he was a tremendous novelist. Uh, he himself had lived a very interesting life. Um, he had been accused of a particular plot to kill the Tsar and was arrested and to make a show of this conspiracy, the Tsar, once he found out that, that Dostoevsky really wasn't guilty to this, nonetheless had him in a fine squad. And uh, the rifles were pointed at Dostoevsky, and right at the last second, uh, the order came and a stay of execution. And obviously that would be a traumatic experience for anyone to go through, and he, it changed his life from that point on. I think Dostoevsky, and there are many, many great spiritual writers, but uh, as far as fiction goes, I think he is the most profound spiritual writer that, that's, that's in literature. I suspect some of you read Crime and Punishment, maybe in college or high school. Tremendous analysis in the corruption and possible redemption of the soul. Uh, the senseless murder Rashkinnikov commits here just to prove his freedom. That's all. That's why he did it. He wanted. He hacked to death these two older women who lived upstairs just to show that he could do it. And finally, um, he is exposed. But in that time, uh, he, if you remember the story, he forms a relationship with, in my opinion, one of the most compelling Christ figures in all of literature, and that's Sonia. There's that wonderful story. Uh, it will actually fit to Brothers Karamazov here in a minute, in which uh, he confesses his crime to Sonia and ask, what should he do? What should I do with my sin? How can I ever be reconciled? Is there hope for me? And she admits just how grave the sin was. But she said, what you needed to go, what you need to do, this is in St. Petersburg, uh, is to go, and I think it was called Haymarket Square in the center of, of St. Petersburg. The roads are laid out north and south, east and west. And so in a sense, the center of the world was right there. And she said, you need to go and kiss the four corners of the earth. And that's what he does. He goes to the middle of the town, he throws himself on the earth, and he begins to weep that he had done damage, not just to killing the women, but to God's creation itself. And he needed to emotionally, effectively, powerfully seek union with that which he had damaged. And so he goes and he kisses the earth. Another great novel that Dostoevsky wrote was called The Idiot. If any read The Idiot, I recommend that you do. Like all no Russian novels, it's got probably 600 characters in it and uh, you know, intricate plot, but it's got a profound story. 
it, it's about a, a prince named Mystican or Mystican. And, um, well, anyway, he's trying to make his way in society, but he's an epileptic. He's an epileptic. And he, he would uh, go into these seizures, and they would be sort of spiritual trances. And one time, he saw Holbein's uh, uh, Christ in the Tomb. You ever, you ever seen that, that painting? I know you probably have. It's one of the most famous paintings of, of the dead Christ in a tomb, emaciated ghostly looking and Missican sees this and he goes into epileptic seizure well people think he is crazy but he is actually the power of redemption that unites all the people in the play and it's by his ability to suffer for them with them that he's able to bring reconciliation in their life it, it, it is a moving novel but here at the end of his life just a year before he dies Dostoevsky publishes The Brothers Karamazov it's about three and a half brothers. Uh, the half brother Smirnikov is an illegitimate son of the father. The father was a, a, a hard drinking, uh, rough, self-absorbed, uh, cruel person, and the brothers all, uh, in a sense, negatively react to him. But they ne they react differently in response to their father. That is, the the oldest um, Ivan is the intellectual of the three. And he sees the world in very cognitive, cerebral terms. And he's an atheist. And he's an atheist because he cannot make sense out of the fact that there is an all-loving and all-powerful God and there's still such senseless, senseless suffering that goes on in the world. Uh, Dimitri is the more earthy, robust, passionate of the three and um, incredibly vivacious but he is accused of the murder of the father and he's arrested and a great trial occurs at the end. The youngest of the three is Alalusha or Lucia, and he is sensitive, uh, very, very responsive, uh, intuitive, and he joins a monastery. He's the spiritual of the three. I'll tell you a little bit more about the monastery in just a second. There's a very famous dialogue between Ivan, he's an atheist, but he's an atheist because he cannot find God. Not because he hates God or doesn't want God or is indifferent, but he cannot find God in a cruel world. And Alalusa. And Ivan says that just uh, that day he had witnessed the death of a young, and I, forgive me, but I think it was a young girl who had stolen bread from a store and the store owner sicked his attack dogs on the little girl and killed her and tore her pieces. And Ivan began to just grievously reflect upon that and began to wonder, how does this fit? Does this fit? Was this necessary? Is God using this incident to work out some great plan in the world that in the end we'll find out that this was in fact a meaningful thing? And Ivan then says to Alalusa, the sensitive, intuitive, spiritual brother, he says, I'm handing back my ticket. A very sort of dramatic way of saying, I reject that view of looking at things. That this is what it is. That is, God set this up to work out a grand providential plan. That the suffering of innocent children is necessary for God's providence to be worked out. Ivan says, I hand back the ticket. I'm not going to watch this. I, I'm checking out. I reject this. And Alalusa is just befuddled by this. He's speechless by it because he loves his brother, 
but he also loves God. He loves how God some way works within the inexplicable and the, and the, the horrible sufferings of the world, even the sufferings of, of young children being killed by dogs. Ivan tells him the story that, uh, that in Seville, Spain, during the height of the Inquisition, in which heretics were not only being arrested and killed and burned, supposed heretics who had died years and years earlier were being exhumed and tried and their bones were being burned. All this effort for religious purity in Spain at this time, uh, Jesus shows up and he starts walking the streets. And at first nobody recognizes him. And then slowly the people begin to see that this is the Lord. This is Christ who has come back and walking the streets of Seville. And they come and they flock around him and the Grand Inquisitor, whose responsibility it was, was to enforce religious purity and uniformity, who was to bring order and stability, to weed out, and, I mean, to, to weed out all the heresies that were rampant at the time, has Jesus arrested. Uh, that chapter is called the Grand Inquisitor. Uh, you probably have run across that chapter in a lot of anthologies, that just that one little chapter in the book uh, is often... Uh, you know, read in a lot of English classes and so on. Well, the Grand Inquisitor tries Jesus, and he says to Jesus that if, um, if you stay around here any longer, I'm going to burn you too. And Jesus doesn't say anything. And the reason why is that Jesus was giving them freedom, true freedom with God. And he says that, uh, that when, when, uh, when Jesus is with the people, that he promises in the word of God that you don't have to turn stones to bread. And the Grand Inquisitor said, well, we have learned to do that and the people love us for that. They love us because we can turn stones to bread. We give them security. You give them freedom. We give them comfort. You give them accountability. We give them peace. And you give them struggles. And one day they will come to their senses and they will kill you too. What a visual, I mean, in some ways, that, that's an accurate rendering of the gospel. The gospel doesn't give us security, doesn't give us an answer for everything. What the gospel gives us is freedom with God, that we live by the word of God, not by the power of changing stones to bread. Well, the Grand Inquisitor says if he sees Jesus the next day, he'll burn him. And Jesus walks up to the old man and kisses him on the lips and turns away. And that's the end of that story. It was a story. But it's to prove a point. Ivan is asking Alalusa, why do you want this kind of God? Why are you following this particular person, Jesus of Nazareth? Because he is offering you something that most people don't want. Most people want control, dominance, manageability of their lives. Jesus offers us freedom, accountability, and intimacy with God. That's what he offers well, Alalusa is just, just in a fog about all this. His other brother is arrested for patricide. His brother, whom he loves very much, has just shaken his faith. And he goes back to the monastery. And it's at the monastery that he has become the uh, close associate of his mentor here, and that's Father Zosima, or Zosima. Some people spell it with two S's. Now, he is a very, very fascinating figure in the book. Uh, 
Zosima uh, had been a wild, sort of rambunctious young man. He had a, a brother, Mikhail, who had become an, who was a very virulent atheist and challenged everything that the church taught. And at his deathbed, though, he had a radical change, and he encouraged his brother, Father Zosima, to love everybody and learn to forgive everybody. Well, uh, Zosima joins uh, a cadet corps, becomes part of the Imperial Guard. He, as he says, he was drunk most of the time, always in fights. And he had an affair with a married woman. And when the uh, husband finds it out, uh, he has a duel uh, uh, with Zosima. The day before the duel, uh, Zosima beats up his orderly for no good reason. And when he is seeing his orderly suffer because he had beat him up, something happens to him. And he has a dramatic change in his life. And it was because he realized that he had caused suffering in the world senselessly. That he couldn't be so self-centered anymore because he had caused such harm to another person for no good reason other than just to show it. Well, at the next day of the duel, when the two line up against one another, uh, Zosima just lowers his pistol and the, the offended husband shoots and nicks him. And instead of raising his pistol, he throws it away. And this starts the transformation of Zosima, and he joins this monastery. He was pious, obviously, very intuitive with other people. It was said of him that people from all around would come to the monastery for counsel with him. And as soon as they walked into his cell, he knew immediately what was going on in their soul because he could see it in their face, the face kind of the mirror of the soul that he had developed this kind of intuitive capacity to read into other people's lives, not just seeing them from his perspective, but trying to see them from their perspective, and that he, he had developed a sort of a sixth sense of reading into people, seeing what they were going through, feeling what they were going through. Well, near the end, as Zosima, excuse me, as Alalusha comes back to the monastery in such despair over what, had, what he had heard from Ivan and Dimitri being prison, he sits down with Father Zosima, and Zosima tells him his kind of life wisdom that he had learned. Now, when Dostoevsky wrote the novel, uh, he spent most of the time on this chapter dealing with Zosima's memoirs. And he said later, after it was published, that the reason why he wrote the great novel in the first place was to express these insights that he gave to Father Zosima. So in some ways, we can see this actually as Dostoevsky's wisdom or his own sense of the art of dying. Uh, I'm going to spot read a few things that he has here. Um, Hold on one second. Uh, young man, uh, be not forgetful of prayer. Every time you pray, if your prayer is sincere, there will be a new feeling, a new meaning in it, which will give you fresh courage, and you will understand that prayer is an education. Remember to every day whenever you can repeat to yourself, Lord, have mercy on all who appear before thee today. 
For every hour, every moment, thousands of people leave life on this earth and their souls appear before God. How many of them depart in solitude, unknown and sad, depicted, I mean dejected, that no one mourns for them or even knows whether they have lived or died? And behold, from the other end of the earth, perhaps your prayer for their rest will rise up to God through you. How touching it must be to a soul standing in dread before the Lord to feel at that instant that for him too there is one to pray, that there is a fellow creature left on earth to love him too, and he will forgive him for your sake. Brothers, have no fear of men's sin. Love a man even in his sin, for that is the semblance of divine love and is the highest love on earth. Love all creation the whole and every grain of sand in it. Love every leaf, every ray of God's light. Love the animals, love the plants, love everything. And if you love everything, you will perceive the divine mystery in things. Once you perceive it, you will begin to comprehend it better every day, and you will come at last to love the whole world with an all-embracing love. Love children especially, for they too are sinless like the angels. They live to soften and purify our hearts as it were, to guide us. Woe to him who offends a child. Remember particularly that you cannot be a judge of anyone, for no one can judge a criminal until he recognizes that he is just as such a criminal as the man standing before him, and that he perhaps is more than all men to blame for that crime. When he understands that, he will be able to be a judge Though that sounds absurd, it is true. If I had been righteous myself, perhaps there would have been no criminal standing before me. If you can take upon yourself the crime of the criminal in your heart is judging, take it at once, suffer for him yourself, and let him go without reproach. And even if the law itself makes you his judge, act in the same spirit so far as possible, for he will go away and condemn himself more bitterly than you have done it. For after your kiss, he goes away untouched, mocking at you. Do not let that be a stumbling block. It shows his time has not yet come, but it will come in due course. Work without ceasing. If you remember in the night as you go to sleep, I have not done what I ought to have done. Rise up at once and do it. If the people around you are spiteful and callous and will not hear you, fall down before them and beg their forgiveness. For in truth you are to blame, for they are not wanting to hear you. And if you cannot speak to them in their bitterness, serve them in silence and in humility, never losing hope. If all men abandon you and even drive you away by force, then when you are left alone, fall on the earth and kiss it. Water it with your tears, and it will bring forth fruit even though no one has seen or heard you in his solitude. And he goes on and he tells Adelusa a couple more times, you must learn to kiss the earth, just like in crime and punishment. What started his transformation is that he was able to sympathize with that which he had harmed. He was able to be connected compassionately with that which has done harm in the world, he learned to kiss the earth. When Father Zosima was dying, uh, they were all gathered around his bed there. That's another picture of Father Zosima. And here's an etching of him in his cell dying. 
and uh, he struggles to get up and people start to help him they see he's fading quickly and he gets on his knees he falls to the ground and he starts kissing the earth and that's how he dies kissing the earth obviously that is symbolic or representative of something and what it is it is representative of his ability to compassionately relate to everything not to see any barriers to forgive and not to judge to have a heart big enough to be able to take in the world where just as you want to kiss your family members are we willing or because you love them and you're affectionately bonded with them are you willing to kiss the earth to be affectionately bonded with the earth as well and then that symbolic act, his last act, he falls down and says, yes, this is who I am. This is what has defined me. He died as he lived. He died kissing the earth. In the story, uh, just a day or so after his death, something very, very peculiar and alarming happened. He began to stink. Now, what was odd about that is that saints were not supposed to be so decaying and corrupting. If you're truly a saint, well, this gave cause for a lot of his uh, enemies to say that he was really a bogus monk. He wasn't a true monk. He was actually a hypocrite. That if he had truly been a saint, he wouldn't have decayed and he wouldn't have stank, I guess is the right way to say it. Uh, and he, in particular, was rivaled by another monk named Farapont. Uh, Farapont was very legalistic, very condemning, very judgmental towards other people. Uh, every time uh, someone would enter a room in his cell, he would see demons in them. Unlike what Zosima saw, that is the heart of another person, he just saw judgment. He saw things to condemn and to reject about other people. And so he uses this as an occasion uh, to say that he was right and that Zosima was wrong. This too also threw Alalusa and really sort of uh, just a befuddled state and he didn't know what to do. But he began to learn something very, very powerful about this. Zosima had taught him, and actually Zosima had learned this from his brother, Mikhail, that the truth of life is expressed in John chapter 12. And in John chapter 12 it says, unless a, a grain of corn falls to the ground, it will not yield fruit. Unless we suffer Unless we give of our lives towards other people, we cannot bear fruit. It was said then of Zosima that the righteous, when the righteous man departs, his light remains. And I think that is the great truth that we learn from the story of Father Zosima about the art of dying that the righteous man departs, yes, we all will die. No matter how hard we work, we die like the dog, the horse, and the rat. We really do. However, though, will we die in a way that there'll be anything remaining of our lives other than, as Lear said, this is a dull state. And what we see with Zosima, that there is light. Light can remain after ours. And what it is, symbolized here in the kissing of the earth, is the tremendous compassion and faith that we can show and one way we do this, and this is a hard, hard lesson. I'm not telling you anything you don't know and you have not struggled with, and that is how not to judge anyone else. We leave a great light for the world when we learn 
not to judge anyone else. And the reason why it's a life is because it draws us to our redeeming Lord. That a person's life can become, and I mean this more metaphorical than I do, than I mean it literally, a sacrament. Of course, I don't think I can actually become the body and the blood of Christ, baptism. But what I can stand for can be, in a sense, a witness of the presence of the forgiving, loving, and merciful, and power of God's grace in our lives. As Vosima did, definitely with Adelusa, and hundreds and hundreds more, he left a light in their world, in their life, gave them a sign, a tangible expression of what it means to be in relationship with Christ who gives us the word of God. He gives us our freedom before God. Well, so what I want to argue here is that he also died as he lived, and that is uh, kissing the earth. That what he had learned in his life was that his real power was not in being self-centered or always winning. His real strength was not always conquering and not always being in a position which you can think you should do to other people, but his real power was like that grain of corn. Only in dying can it yield great fruit. Only when we love, only when we give compassion, only we show great empathy towards others. And when we don't judge others, we will learn to pray for everybody. And I love that image there that Zosima gives to Alalusa. Pray for everybody. For when that soul stands before God thinking they are standing utterly, utterly alone, you are there beside them, petitioning on their behalf. That we have this spiritual capacity. I know this is poetic. It, I don't think it's diluted. No, I don't think it's diluted at all. But I, I, it stretches our imagination to be able to, to put our minds around the idea that we can join all of humanity through this kissing of the earth, through this power of prayer, through this empathy for all people as they stand before God. And this is the wisdom, I think, of what Sosima teaches us. And that's the art, I think, of dying, exemplified in this great figure, Sosima. Uh, I was a junior in college when I read this book. I had a professor mention that it was one of his most favorite books. And so I read it. And... Um, I won't tell you how crazy I was when I was a junior in college. Uh, but I read this book, and when I finished it, and you may think I probably need psychology or, or help or something, but um, I was different. I was different after I read this book. It affected me in a way in which I realized that what he was talking about, this ability to kiss the earth, uh, was something that I needed to do. I needed to learn what that was all about. And that has started me on a long sort of journey, sometimes right, sometimes left, sometimes backwards, but nonetheless, hopefully trying to learn the wisdom that Zosima had and the art of dying. And so that, I don't know, who knows when this may happen, but when I'm dying, if given the chance, that like he, um, I'll fall down and kiss the earth too. But got a minute or two before we need to go. Some people have already left. Thank you for coming, Deborah. Um, any questions? Comments? Yes. Yeah. Uh, the line is in King Lear, I think, where he says, Ingratitude, yeah. thou marble-hearted thing. Yeah. I always remember that. Yeah. yeah he talks, he's talking about his daughters, Ingratitude. Yeah. And he talks about it a number of times. But the irony of this 
is that he also is ungrateful. He has, by his own selfishness, created a, an environment of ingratitude towards himself. And again, he keeps blaming. He doesn't even admit this at the end. He is not wanting to see that he has brought on not just his own sorrow, but the death of his daughters and the civil war. Ingratitude. Well, it's in our own heart. That's where it is. It's not in other people. I don't think you'd get more opposite than Lear and, and Zosima. But aren't they teaching us the same thing? Aren't they teaching us when, the, when, we, when we see the world as basically defined by our own self-interest versus seeing the world as something that we can kiss, that is compassionately be involved in, even that which should be judged, we will not, uh, we learn how to properly die. Anyone else? Any other comments? Questions? Okay, next Sunday when I come back, I'm going to share probably two or three books that I've read recently about contemporary writers. They're not fictional, they're more essays where these people came to grips with their own dying and what we can learn from them. They're very powerful stories. Right. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, Soften our hearts, enlarge our feelings, so that we too may bear what other people go through, that we can share in our own way what Zosima shared with others, and this ability to stand beside them in our prayers, to bear them in our own hearts. This I pray. Amen. <laughs>